The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey, and today we're going to be talking about Fallout 4, Stella Glow, and the new news that Valkyria Chronicles is finally returning, which makes me very happy. Joining me today is our old friend Bob Mackey. Hey, everybody. And we have a third person on this podcast. Joining us is Phil Kohler from Polygon. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I'm bringing you on because you two are in the middle of playing Fallout 4. I finished it last week for review. I basically locked myself (laughs) in my apartment for a solid week with pizza. I was getting the real gamer experience with this game. Um, But this is not a game that you necessarily want to binge. It's definitely a game that you should take your time on. So I guess the first thing that I'm kind of curious is, how far are you guys right now? Um, How about you, Phil? Uh, So I'm actually uh, doing, because I I love taking on projects that are really poorly thought out, um, I'm doing a full Let's Play series on Fallout 4 (laughs) with, uh, with my colleague Danielle Riendo. And, so you're going to uh, finish, like, in 26, 2018, maybe? Something like that. Um, so so I'm only playing when we record in order to kind of uh, keep the the mystery and, and the surprise, uh, which means I'm only about six or seven hours in, uh, because mm. that's all that we've recorded at this point. Um, in my game, I just got to, without you know going into any, any sort of spoilers or anything, um, we just got to Diamond City and, and the... Boston area, I guess. So you're both in Diamond City then, because Bob was just telling me off air that he was also in Diamond City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm wrapping up all the quests there, at least uh, the ones that are available right now. Well, let's talk a little bit about the intro, uh, which you wrote a bit about on the site, Bob. Um, as most people know, it opens in what well, suburban, the suburban Boston area. Um, before the bombs fall, and there was a great deal of speculation about what exactly was going on with the main character that they could be around 200 years after the bombs fall. Um, spoilers coming up here if you don't want any, if you don't want to hear anything spoiler related. But so this is like the first hour of the game. But this is like seriously the first hour. The main character yeah. is walks into the vault and gets put into cryogenic freeze with her husband and her baby. And well, I say they're, they're probably like uh, more like they're tricked into the vaults, really. Yes. Well, or well, is that the, too scary? No, no. I mean, okay. We've already given the spoiler alert. It's right, fine. Okay. No, a guy comes to the door and says, "You're you're invited to the vault," and I, I guess he works for the Voltec. He works for Voltec, and they have their own designs for them. And then everybody gets put into cryogenic freeze for some reason. Um, but at one point, she wakes up, and she sees um, a mysterious, uh, a couple of mysterious men come in, uh, kill her husband, and take the baby. And then she wakes up. I thought, 
I actually thought this is one of the most effective um, bits of storytelling I've seen in a Bethesda-made RPG um, up until this point because it doesn't. It's not overly reliant on dialogue. It's all action. It's all seen from your perspective. You're looking through the the door out to see the actions happening. It's a disturbing moment. There's not a lot of context going on. I would even go as far as to say that it was subtle, which I liked. What did you guys think? Well, I would have been a lot less charitable to it if I had chosen the male character because a mm-hmm. a uh, a male character's inspiration or like motivation being the death of a loved one or a girlfriend or a wife is one of the most overused tropes in all of like fiction period. Just like Right. But the fact that I was playing, I chose the female character, and the fact that it was the husband this time was like, oh, that's progressive. They killed a husband for once instead of the wife. Well, what's funny is that the game doesn't even seem to care about the significant other. It's all about getting the baby back. Yeah, I yeah. mean, well, the significant other is a corpse at this point. So. <laughs> well, like, There's she no doesn't even, back. or in my case, um, it's a female character. Are, Phil, are you playing with a male character or a female character? Uh, we were playing with a female character. We're all ladies today. Yeah. We're all ladies today. Um you know, it's funny, like, she doesn't even seem to care about the husband. Like, I don't even remember her husband's name. I just know that the baby's name is Sean. <laughs> and she's like, where's my baby? I'm looking for my baby. So, so yeah, in that sense, it's kind of funny. But I found that the actual sequence kind of worked. Um, have you guys seen The Day After? I, I actually yes. don't know what that is. You don't know what that is, Bob? It's I don't a classic know it of American cinema. The day after, yeah, it was made after? in 1982. Oh, was it a TV? Is that the TV movie made for TV movie? Yes, it was okay. made by Nick Meyer, who made Star Trek Two. I haven't seen that. I've seen a lot of like nuclear panic movies, but I have not seen that. Very similar to the day after and the construction of the scenes leading up to the actual bombs dropping with the TV, uh, with the, the, the repeated news updates and the regular stuff happening in the background. Um, just something say, uh, regarding the, the opening, the intro thing. I think, I think you're right that the hook that they give for the early game for the main story is better than I'm used to from Bethesda RPGs. Mm-hmm. Um, However, and I think it has got some some uh, criticism. I think rightfully uh, deserved. Just just in the sense of the opening is those opening moments are a little bit heavy handed in the way that they make you or the way that they try to make you care about your family. Um, yeah, <laughs> without without having a lot of depth to it. Press uh, X to love baby. Yeah, moments. exactly. And and it's yeah. it's it's tough because. I get that they wanted to get you through that intro and into what ma- what the people who play Fallout play Fallout for um, as quickly as possible. So I don't think you know, like I don't think they wanted to spend like two hours just hanging out with your family and you know um, really getting to care about these characters. Uh, so I, I don't know what the solution would have been there. It would have been really interesting. Um, I, it would have been very heavy rain of very, them. Very annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they put in the option to just skip it, I don't know. But uh, it's 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 a tough problem. Well, it just goes to show how like we consume media differently. Because back in like the seventies or whatever, like we used to have these 
I mean, obviously it wasn't in video games, but in movies they used to move a lot more slowly. And now, and now like if a movie lingers on something too long, people go, man, this is so slow and boring. What the heck is going on here? And that seems to go double for video games. And I'll admit that I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like that too. Like I was happy that they got me through the the intro stuff. They got me into the vault. It's like okay, now I've been set free. Good, finally. the the one um the one downside of the intro for me at least was the fact that uh, these these characters you can play as they're a little more predefined than what Fallout usually starts you with. You're typically like a blank slate with some sort of past, but as to who this person is, it's completely on you. But these characters, the the woman is a practices law, and the the man is a former or current military uh, guy. So already, even with those positions, it's like, what if I want to play like a brain dead scumbag who's addicted to drugs and hits people with a pipe? The fact that I have a law degree might contradict that just a little bit. Like if <laughs> if I want to start with an intelligence of one, so like the, those those aspects, it's kind of hard to mesh really traditional role playing with some sort of narrative push because yeah. like they need to start you with something and those those uh character choices might conflict with the character that you want to play ultimately it's also a little strange uh in that same respect you know when you're when you're playing as the guy and it's like okay he's a military veteran he gets into this weird post-apocalyptic world and okay he knows how to use guns i get it um there is an aspect of of that on the when you're playing as the woman that's a little bit more confusing and like Wait, so she just picked up a gun and now she's like, she's cool? All right. I mean, <laughs> she's immediately punching roaches. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's, there's just like, because there's that little, that slight hint of these being predefined characters, of them having some backstory already, it feels a little bit more uh, strange than it would have. I got to say that if I woke up in a vault full of roaches that were like as big as I am. I would not be shooting them with a handgun. I would get right back into my cryogenic chamber and I would not come out ever. <laughs> because, ew, that's all I can say. But Just don't come over to my apartment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I, I get what you're saying with that. But in this instance, I definitely think it was the right decision to go with... I, I called it kind of pulling a Bioware, going more Bioware with the characters. It's true that you remove now you're as a player you're operating at a bit of a remove from your character Hmm. but i think part of the reason that bethesda has struggled with good storytelling up until this point some of it was the writing which could be um kind of ham-fisted as we were kind of alluding to and frankly fallout 3 is like it struggled with having a good villain and and the motivations weren't always that interesting. Um, but it, what really hurt it was just the fact that you never saw your characters and you're always just, you know, picking from very long dialogue options, like something straight out of the, the late 80s, early 90s, complete with like numbers, like indicating how much of a stat you needed to be able to unlock a particular option. And that option would always work. So in this case, I think the decisions that they made in terms of how the characters interact with, or how having a slightly more predefined character, um, kind of removing the character a bit, like really helps the storytelling and 
in a weirdly kind of inverse way makes it a more emotional story. That's my opinion anyway. Well, I'm not, I don't know about you guys, but for me at least, the, the storylines of Fallout 3, um, Fallout New Vegas, and this one, the main, the main narrative, the main campaign doesn't really speak that much to me. It doesn't really matter that much to me. Like, I'm not excited about finding my baby. That's not something I really care about doing. I really just care about wandering through the world and just like stumbling into these very, very dark short stories that are playing out in front of me. Like, I love going to a new place and figuring out like what's going on with these people. Like, I'm not inspired to find the baby. The baby is at like the lot, the, like the last thing on my checklist, basically, because I want to do all the cool stuff in the world first before I, you know, get over those narrative walls. I mostly, I just keep thinking of um, uh, Khaleesi from Game of Thrones going, "Where's my dragons?" In that case, but I, so I will agree with you, Bob, at the point of the story that you're in, which you're just getting to Diamond City. Um, yeah, at that point, I didn't particularly care about finding my baby. The thing that I found much more interesting was the Institute, because... So For sure, the, that is way more interesting. The Institute is set up almost immediately, right? Uh, like, almost as soon as you come out of stasis, you're finding out about this mysterious shadowy Institute, which is apparently kidnapping people and replacing them with robots. And... You don't know, like, who is a robot, who isn't a robot. Some people don't seem to know that they're robots. And so that, so they set up this, like, core mystery. Who is the Institute? What do they want? What are they trying to accomplish? Where are they even? Um, and I think Fallout 4 does a really effective job of, like, kind of pushing that mystery, releasing information and kind of kind of a slow a slowly but surely releasing information to the point where like i was actively anticipating going oh oh so that's what's going on oh okay so that's what they want etc and and it leads to some actually really terrific moments and i wish uh i could spoil some of them here but unfortunately a lot of people are still pretty early in the game which is kind of what happens when you have this thanksgiving feast of a rpg coming out like a week ago but i think that that element of the story works really well um and i'm not gonna say anything else <laughs> uh but yeah that ultimately was what pushed me to keep going through the campaign the main story uh, not the baby. Um, out of curiosity, did you two play Skyrim? Yeah, I played a lot of Skyrim. Did you play I, it, Bob? I only played like five hours, and I was like, I'll just wait for Fallout 4, because I know what a Bethesda RPG is like, and I kind of prefer the post-apocalypse setting to fantasy in most cases. We covered this a couple weeks ago, but I, I never felt that inspired to finish Skyrim's campaign. I was much more interested in just wandering around the world and doing stuff like the the werewolf quest line what about you phil did you how far did you get in the story i mean i i have the same approach to bethesda games that it sounds like uh bob does which is um i mean i will usually finish them eventually but the main story is not the reason that i'm playing and it's never been what i think bethesda has been particularly strong at um i think as we've been discussing Fallout 4, from everything I've seen thus far, again, being very early in the game still, 
seems to be the closest or, or the, the furthest along I've gotten towards creating a compelling primary plot narrative. Uh, but for the most part, what's pulling me through these, <clears throat> these games is exploring the world. And I think in a lot of cases, some of the side quests and some of the like uh, faction quests, those end up actually being really interesting, uh, more well-told stories than, than the, the main, the primary quests. And I think that was absolutely the case in Skyrim. Yes. Uh, the primary quest I did not care about at all. Um, but the, a lot of the faction stuff and a lot of just the random things you would stumble upon in the world were really interesting to me. Have you had a chance to investigate at all what's going on in Diamond City? Uh, no. Okay. I have a bit. I mean, I, I've met, um, the people at the newspaper and I basically talked to everyone and am doing all their quests. So have you found Nick Valentine? Uh, no, that's next on my list. It feels like a, a more important quest, so I'm just doing all like the little minor ones first before I head off uh, to do the Nick Valentine quest. Nick Valentine ended up being my primary uh, my primary companion. A uh, spoiler alert: <laughs> he's a <laughs> companion once you find him. I've been um, using um, Codsworth. I, I want to use the dog, but it just doesn't do a lot for me in battle like Codsworth will. So, so here's the thing with dog meat. I. After how awesome the dog was in Metal Gear Solid Five, oh, yeah, I'm spoiled by D Dog too. <laughs> D Dog was like such an amazing dog. Like, uh, dog meat feels downright stupid. Yeah, it's like, what's wrong with you, you dumb dog? Why are you wandering around over here? What are you doing, God? Um, I mean, you can do kind of the same things with them, right? You can like sick them on, um, on an enemy, and what else? I forget what else you can do with dog meat. Like, you can level them up, right? I think he can learn, like, there there are different perks that you can, you know, pick up that um, he can hold enemies so you can shoot them. I think that's one of the, um, I forget what the system in this game is called, but you know when you're choosing, when you level up, you choose a different thing to star. I don't mm-hmm. know what they call it this time around, but I think one of those is uh, that dog meat will hold enemies. Right. So I'm going to admit that I lost dog meat and I don't know where he is. <laughs> oh, no. I've heard. I've heard other people talk about that too. So... I got to a certain point. Oh yeah, when Nick Valentine joined up with me, um, I had Dog Meat as my companion, and I was like, "Uh, it was like, oh, I can join you now." And I was like, "Oh, okay, um, sweet. I want you as my companion. You're like awesome and stuff." Uh, Dog Meat, shoot, wh- what do I do with you? Um, I'll send you back to Sanctuary. So I sent uh, Sanctuary, being like your old hometown, which has become a settlement. Um, I sent him back <laughs> to Sanctuary. I have not found him since. I'm told, I've been told by people, uh, just as, as prep for when I get to this point, is that you, you need to check dog houses. Oh, <laughs> I've also dog been, houses. I've also been told, and this is kind of goofy, but apparently at any settlement that you have, um, you can, with the crafting system, you can create a dinner bell and then use it. And it will summon all of your companions. Oh, that's what the bell is. Oh, okay. Which is like, this is a lot of stuff, and I think we're we're getting to a an interesting point about Fallout that might be <laughs> worth discussing. Uh, Fallout Four, which is this game has a lot of systems, a lot of weird, uh, yeah. interesting, intricate, deep systems 
And it doesn't explain much of anything. I would, nope. That's been on the back of my tongue this entire conversation. Just um, <laughs> that whole base building mechanic. It's like, okay, you can do this, but it's like, wh- why do I want to do this? What are the benefits? What are uh, like, what am I getting out of it? None of that is explained to me. And like, I've, I've not really touched any of that base building stuff. And, I, and I'm doing just fine. Like, it just seems like a lot of work, and I don't know what will come of it. I so I I pretty early on just started doing the Minutemen Minutemen quests. Um, and I followed that quest line all the way through. And I will definitely say it's worth it. You should go do the Minutemen quests. I've also been told, and, and, and this is getting a little bit further into the game, um, without getting into storyline spoilers or anything, Kat, but you can probably confirm for us. But I've been told that the, the factions in this game don't work like Elder Scrolls factions in the sense that there are multiple factions in the game, but once you get to a certain point, uh, you're going to be closing off factions by sticking with one of them. Oh, wow. I I was able to stick with all of the factions until pretty much the very end of the game. Interesting. Okay. Um, Like, I... Without getting too much into it, um, I got in friendly with the Brotherhood of Steel pretty early on. And I was able despite like going against their interests quite a bit for a good chunk of the game, <laughs> I was able to um, stay in their good graces for most of it and have them not be my enemies. Um, there's Because the different compact- factions are, for the most part, in conflict with one another and have very different aims, um, at some point you do have to make a choice. And the choice kind of reflects like, what is... What is your opinion on what is going on in this world? Like, how do you feel about certain things? Um, I'm explicitly not saying what it is so that I can avoid spoiling anything. But so in that sense, I'm okay with having to choose a particular faction because it's sort of like these factions are so diametrically opposed to one another that you kind of have to pick a side. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, like, I'm definitely not against that. I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that they, unlike in the Elder Scrolls games where those factions kind of exist very separately from each other and they might intertwine every once in a while, but they they pretty much operate independently. Um, it's it's interesting to set up a world where instead those factions interact very directly and often in opposition to each other. Well, the thing with Skyrim was like there was a civil war, right? You yeah. could either join the Empire or you could join the Nords. And both of them were kind of despicable in their own way. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I, I hate both of you. I mean, the Nords are super racist and the Empire's, you know, awful. They're colonial. They're big and imperial. But I ended up picking the Empire because whatever. So it wasn't a very satisfying choice. Um, yeah, absolutely. In Fallout 4... I think it sets it up things so you feel really strongly about the issues that are going on. And so you're like, well, yeah, obviously I would join this faction because they're the ones who have the right idea. I'm going over here. I haven't gotten that yet. I, I just don't know what these people are doing in the context of the larger world yet. I haven't gotten right. that information and I, I think New Vegas, at least for me, I think it might have set things up a lot stronger early because aren't there just two main factions in that game? There's like there's Caesar and the Republic or whatever they call it. Yeah, there's the New California Republic and there's Caesar. 
And, and I mean, the Brotherhood of Steel exists in that game, but they're they they're kind of minor. But I feel like early on, they set up Caesar as this despicable slave trader who, if you wanted to play an evil character, you'd be like, that's the guy I'm going with. Which he is. He's super yeah. evil. It's like, oh, it's either good or evil. Or you can join, go the third way and um, work with the guy in the casino who's oh, in the right, computer. Yeah. Matthew Perry or Dave Foley. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I actually did all of the endings, but yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like that actually because you can either be evil or you can be kind of liberal with the New California Republic, or you can be super cynical in the way that you approach things um, by signing by with what's his face. But in some ways, I don't think the choices are as black and white in Fallout 4 because I feel like the way that they present things, like, I think all of the factions have points, I guess I could say. Um, there's only one faction that I actively said, nope, nah, uh, you're so wrong and I hate you immediately and I'm going to do everything I can to destroy you. Uh, but the other factions, I'm like, yeah, you might have a point. I don't know. But... That's the interesting thing about Fallout 4. I actually find this world really interesting. I had a great time in it. Um, and it helps that I'm a big sci-fi fan. Um, and, and it touches on a lot of issues that I think are, are pretty pertinent, especially AI in the real world. But let's get back to the systems thing really quickly. Settlements. So you guys have not worked on building settlements at all. I, I've, I've done, done a it a very, little. Yeah, just a very small amount. I've done like sort of the basic starter stuff at Sanctuary or whatever the first one that you get is called. Yeah. Um, so I did a lot of the settlement stuff. I agree with the criticism that it never really gives you a reason to do it. Aside from the fact that it's some side quests that will earn you credits. And, like, XP and stuff. So, as the game goes along, like, you'll find out about other settlements dotting kind of the landscape. And you can get them on your side. There was actually one settlement where I showed up and it was the typical, oh, this place looks really nice, but there's something e there's something awful going on here. <laughs> and once I discovered their dark secret, I killed them all. And then I took over their town, which was really nice. It was a nice little town. And once you kill them all, like, it lets you take over their town. Like, you can actually take their workshop and start building stuff and then putting settlers in there. Oh, wow. Except that their dead bodies never go away. You can't dispose <laughs> of their dead bodies. That's true. So their just bodies are just lying around that never decompose. I have to say, though, one of the things that gets in the way of me wanting to approach the base building mechanic is, like, uh, the UI in this game, I think, is not very good. Of all the things it's they... Not, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually surprised that about of how bad it is, just because it's like, you guys had four years, and you just kind of kept the same thing. The UI I, is pretty bad, yeah. Yeah, especially when it comes to, like, sorting items or working on things. Like, I, I built a generator for my little town just to see what it would do, and, and I think it took me, like, 20 minutes to figure out how to, like... Attach a run, power cord? Yeah, run a power cord, because it was like this, This it was like, you have to hit Y while highlighting it, and it's, and it's like, okay, I guess, okay. Here's the thing but, about the base building. There is a point where to progress, you have to kind of understand, like, how it works. Because there is a point where you have to build a thing. And, like, the game will make sure that you get the right materials and everything, 
but it really helps to kind of understand those basic mechanics because otherwise you're going to be totally at sea with how to do this thing, which could be a flaw if you're like kind of just ignoring the base building up until that point. But in any case, I, no, I, I totally agree with you. Actually, the interface is really not great in Fallout 4. Um, Oh man, especially I mean I think I'm I don't I, I may have talked with you about this or, or something, but the maps especially irritate mm. the living hell out of me because there are some missions where it'll be like clear yeah. out this building of guys, and there'll be like maybe one guy left, and you know where he is in the building, but the map is just so pointless and functionless because it doesn't show you different levels of um, verticality or anything like that. It's all represented as yeah. one flat image, which is like come on guys, Metroid Prime figured this out like thirteen and- years ago. And also, like, Boston itself is really complicated. So, like, it's really tightly packed together, right? And some of the buildings, and it's not always clear how to get from point A to point B. And there were at least a couple missions where I was heading toward the dot, but I had no idea how to reach said dot. Yeah. And... And at least one of them was a story mission. Hmm. And I was getting pretty frustrated being like, where the heck am I supposed to be going? It is a lot better than Fallout 3, though, because in that game, you everything was connected by subway tunnels. And it wasn't it wasn't always like logical how things connected. So a lot of your time was spent underground trying to figure out how to get to a place above ground, which I think this game and New Vegas both avoided. They're a lot. It's a lot more open of a game. And it does... Like, yeah, you spend a lot more time above ground, thank God. Like, there are subways, but you don't really have to go into them. And you spend a lot of, a fair amount of time just tromping around um, kind of the open Commonwealth land, which I think that's kind of fallout at its best when you're on the open road. So. What do you guys think about, uh, one thing that I've seen critiqued a lot is how much time the game requires you to spend sort of futzing around in menus, um, mm-hmm. particularly regarding like, you know, you just, you're picking up so much loot, you're trying to figure out what's actually worth keeping versus worth selling. Um, you're breaking stuff down for the crafting system. That's kind of new to the game or, or much improved, I guess. One thing that I think a lot of RPGs, especially Western RPGs struggle with inventory management and limited inventories. Um, my character was never particularly strong. So I often found myself having to dump crap that was too heavy for my character to carry around. Um, one of my motivations for building a house early on was, A, it was cool to have a house. And it was like a multi-story house that I actually like went through the trouble of building, and I felt pretty good about that. Um, but I also wanted a chest that I could drop all of my stuff off of because you get a lot of really heavy things like relatively early on, like you're getting like missile launchers and like a nuclear weapon launcher, like, like within the first like five, 10 hours of the game. And it's like, I can't carry this stuff around in my inventory. Uh, so that stuff can be a hassle. Um, I actually thought Pillars of Eternity handled the inventory way better than Fallout ever did because it categorized everything. Like, it had separate categories for everything, and then the 
the individual, um, each individual category had a lot of inventory slots. So I never felt like I was spending a lot of time managing my inventory. I think the annoying thing about Fallout 4 is that it's just a big list of items, right? So it it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to find things that you're looking for. Um, there's tons of ammo, like all of the ammo is its own thing. And the ammo gets really granular. Yeah, it yeah. does. I mean, the categories are nice. The only thing that annoys me, I, th- I feel like I'm so inured to Fallout menus after spending like 250 hours with them with the past two games that they don't bother me that much. But I always hate when I pick up something I can read and it gets filtered into my MISC category. And it's yes. like, well, okay, what was it called? Um, there's no, I wish I could sort it like by, by time I picked it up or like latest item picked up or something because mm. it's like, oh man, what was that note I just picked up? Or just have God. a separate category for notes. Oh yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. that's an even better idea. Yeah, it's like, yeah. We were talking about uh, breaking things down. Um, for the longest time, I thought that I had to manually break down the junk that I was getting in my inventory. Oh yeah, me too. And it wasn't until maybe halfway through the game that I was like, oh, oh, it breaks down automatically. So once I have, once I'm loaded up with all this junk, um, I can just store it in my workbench, and I'm I'm good to go. Yeah. But then there's weird stuff, too, where there's, like, some stuff that will get broken down if you store it, but that you don't necessarily want because it's more valuable if you just sell it. Mm-hmm. Like, pre-war money, I guess, is something that the game will break down for you, but if you sell it, it's worth more. I found pre-war money better as cloth, <laughs> because cloth can be kind of annoying to get. Sure. And sure. if you're actually taking the time to build up settlements, um, you need cloths for beds and sleeping bags. Um, so I started keeping all of the pre-war money that I got, but it was nice to actually have to worry. It was nice to have a reason to pick up all that junk that was laying around, um, the many, many broken ramshackle buildings that I've found. But, oh, one last thing that I didn't know about, I didn't know you could build supply routes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You have to get a certain, uh, you have to you have to choose a certain uh, perk when you're leveling, right? Yeah, I think it's under charisma. That yeah, perk. you have to pick a like town leader or something, which I did because I wanted to build the shops in my town, which are actually pretty useful because mm-hmm. you can get a lot of really good stuff from them. Uh, but I also and I also didn't know that you had to assign people for a long time to different stuff, and how you did that. So like I would build things and then they would just sit there empty. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, uh, they could have done a better job of explaining some of the systems in this game, but it's big and interesting and complicated, and I was having a good time with it. Like, I actually did become invested in building the communities, sort of for their own sake. Um, it let me, kind of let me leave an imprint on the game world, which I think is the point. Like, they didn't yeah, they could have come up with a specific objective, like they could have handed end game state for your community or whatever, but I I found it s- sort of satisfying just to build the communities for their own sake. So, I suppose what are your thoughts so far? Are you really enjoying it? Are you kind of lukewarm? Are you reserving judgment? 
I really like it. Um, I do agree it has some flaws, though, but I've kind of put everything else aside right now to play as much of it as possible, and I'm, I'm staying up way too late uh, hmm. playing the game. So it's really got a hold on me. I, th- I think I'm going to take a break from it over Thanksgiving just to play other stuff because I'm in the middle of a billion games. But um, yeah, despite all the problems I've had, all the bugs I've faced, uh, some things that annoy me, it's, I, I can't stop playing it. So that's, uh, that's, I guess that speaks to how much fun I'm having. Phil? Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked a lot about some of the flaws or some of the criticisms that the game has faced. I think it says a lot about the quality of the game and the quality of Bethesda's approach to creating open-world games that, in spite of any of those flaws, like, there's no question that even if I wasn't playing it for work, I would be playing it all the time. Um, it's, it's I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. Seven years to make this game. I mean, I can't think of many developers that can sink those kind of resources into a game like Fallout 4. And what's so interesting is that it's a, in many ways an old school gaming experience. It's still very RPG-ish, um, including the way like the shooting, in, including the way that the shooting is handled. Like everybody complained about Mass Effect and how it had accuracy modifiers and everything, and it didn't feel quite right. Well, Fallout's the same, but something about these games just really seem to have a hold on people. Like, people are going freaking nuts for Fallout 4. I mean, it's it's like uh, it's like that, that controversial article from earlier this week in Fortune <laughs> said. It's, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, as much as people made fun of that article, I think the overall point was true, which is this is a really hardcore niche game in a lot of ways, and yet it's it's selling numbers and getting hype that would normally be reserved for the most mainstream of games. I think it's just it's just so different. Like it offers so much freedom. Um it does such a good job of making you feel invested in the world that and, and people seem to be just drawn towards sandbox experiences where they can really get lost in these huge virtual worlds. I don't think it's any coincidence that some of the most sandboxy games ever made, Minecraft, Fallout, um, uh, GTA, are typically the ones that are the most popular. Mm-hmm. And I, sa- I said this on From Us to You this week, so apologies for repeating myself, but I think uh, the reason a lot of people are going crazy for this game or why, why there's so much excitement is because we had to wait five years to play it. We don't have that like franchise fatigue, you know, like this is an event. And I think more publishers uh, could learn from this. Just like if you make people wait, you can have a better product and you can have people be more excited for it. So Although, say we all. <laughs> I don't know anything about making money. So um, <laughs> take that as you will. Welcome back. Uh, It's just Bob and I now, and we're going to be talking about Stella Glow, which came out on the Nintendo 3DS. Was it this week, I believe? Um, I think it came came, out, yeah, Tuesday, I believe, or Wednesday. Kind of came out of nowhere, but it is the new strategy RPG by Image Epoch, the late Image Epoch, I suppose, because they went out of business earlier this year. R.I.P. Bob, you took a look for it at it for the site. What are your thoughts? 
I did. I did want to talk about the developer really briefly because um, it's funny. It's a funny but depressing sign of the times. And by funny, I don't mean haha funny. I mean, actually, I don't know what I mean. But <laughs> they uh, they entered the business in 2005 just to make RPGs. And now they're out of business in 2015. So I feel like that's really saying something about what's happening in the world of gaming right now. But um, it, it really just goes to show that there isn't a huge amount of room for these kind of mid-tier developers. I never got the feeling that Image Epoch really went lowest common denominator like a few other developers. I will say, yeah, they're not Idea Factory, who is only in business because all they do is just pander, pander, pander. And even even that is not working as, as well as, as it used to for them. Well, I, a company like Idea Factory, like, <laughs> I, I don't mean to single them out I do, but specifically, <laughs> but... They've succeeded because they've ruthlessly cut costs and gone like they know that production values aren't a huge aren't as big a deal as art. Um, and they've kind of ruthlessly gone for a very specific targeted um, segment of the population in the US and Europe and Japan. Whereas Image Epoch strikes me as kind of a throwback in kind of a any like um, 90s early 2000s kind of way they really do i can tell you what other things they worked on they worked on um uh sands of destruction which i believe you might have oh, talked yeah. about for one that up was a not billion a years game. ago <laughs> no it wasn't it was like uh, xenogears seventh dragon crap. also uh which is by the etrian odyssey director which we never that got was a good here. game yeah i heard that jeremy loves that game the other and, ones um, weren't so good yeah and uh arc rise fantasia which uh has a pretty cool soundtrack it seemed also like not a good game it's that's not a good game either but hey but maybe they, they maybe they really deserve poor to be out of business what's that had a really poor localization uh okay yeah i think i heard some of that voice acting when when it came out and it's like everything else that came out of image epoch which was it was this kind of jrpg gruel right it was like right yeah yeah it, it's a JRPG, and it uses all the tropes of the genre, and it's comfort food, I suppose. Um, the Last Ranker, they worked on that, too. That also looked really oh. cool, but we never got that. And they actually pulled a few square people into their games, like Yasunori Mitsuda did music for a few of their games, and, and uh, Yoko Shimomura did the Last Ranker soundtrack, which I've, I've listened to multiple times. I've never actually played the game. At this point, who hasn't uh, pulled in some square people? <laughs> That's really true. That's really true. I mean, it feels like every Japanese company is like, oh, yeah, we got some square people on yeah. our team. Um, Yoshitaka Amano draws him a logo on a napkin, and it's like, <laughs> oh, with art by Yoshitaka Amano. <laughs> exactly. Um, I played Luminous Arc about, oh, seven years ago, 2008 or 2007, um, when I was living in Japan. And this was a period when I was playing JRPGs pretty much exclusively. And my recollection of it was that it was... It was enjoyable. Um, in a, it was very, uh, I should say, conventional in the way that it approached the tactics genre, and that sounds like that's the case for Stella Glow as well. Yeah, the word I used a few times in my write-up was unambitious, which mm-hmm. is not the worst thing to be, but it is it is not trying to do like new and interesting things. It is very much in a comfort food zone of like. You know how to play a strategy RPG. Uh, you play Shining Force. You play Tactics. Here's here's a version of that, but with no job system or anything like that. So it really, really is like the older Shining Force games, the ones I really love. Yeah, you've mentioned Shining Force a few times in your write up. Um, what about it specifically is very similar to Shining Force? 
Well, you have uh, prescribed characters with prescribed abilities. There's no job system or anything like that. And just the way you like amass an army of these prescribed distinct characters um, really does feel like Shining Force. And the the battles are simple enough where they're they're very much like the 16-bit Shining Force strategy battles where you're just moving along these grids and where you're standing matters and um, where, where you're facing your enemy matters and, you know, verticality matters too. So it's very, very straightforward. You don't have to worry about, like, what's my enemy's... Um, What's my enemy's uh, blood type and, you know, all that stuff. It's just like, uh, it's what it's just is like, their zodiac sign? Exactly. Like, no, no, just attack them from the side or the back and you'll be fine. And of course, there's some characters are strong. You put them up front. You put the archers in the back. You you protect your magic users. You use area of effects. But it's, I mean, like I said in my write up, if if you've played Shining Force or any of these games, if I, if I handed you Stella Glow mid battle, you'd be able to get to the end. Like you, you mm. know how to play this kind of game if you have played it before. Not necessarily a bad thing. No, actually. no, of course not. Very accessible. Um, you you also compared it a bit to Persona in the way that they were handling the times. Uh, like there's a time element where you can go out and do what run errands, I guess. Yeah, when when they're not making you go on your story based missions or when they're preventing you from going on those, there are these things called free time, which is basically like what you do in Persona when you're not going into the labyrinth. You can you know do social links with your you know party members and get them new skills. You can earn money doing errands. Or you can like search the town you're in for supplies. So it's very basic, but again, it helps break up the gameplay where you're not always just going into battle after battle. Yeah, I, I, I just thought it was funny how Lum- or Image Epoch, they're very good at basically appropriating uh, stuff from other JRPGs. <laughs> Which, again, not necessarily a bad thing. Like, they, Tales was always the game that they would borrow from liberally hmm. for their own games. Um, Arc Rise Fantasia, I think, had a pretty extensive cooking system. That game like looks a lot like games. a Tales game, too. And it looked like a Tales game. Like, it could have been Arc Rise, Tales of Fan, Tales <laughs> of Arc. Yeah, there's already a Tales of Fantasia. <laughs> there's already a Tales of Fantasia, yeah. Um, and they did it with Luminous Arc as well with her little vignettes. Um, so it's not surprising to me in the least that they turned to Persona, which is very popular in Japan, uh, in terms of coming, uh, in terms of using the, uh, the time system for Stella Glow. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not necessarily a game that I foresee myself playing, but it definitely seems like it would have an audience here in the U.S. Like there are certainly people who would vacuum this up and really enjoy it. I think it. so. I mean, I wish it was a little more ambitious, and I wish it mm. was uh, did a little more interesting things with like classes and jobs and stuff. But at the same time, like who else is making this kind of game? I, no, I mean, but not a lot there, of people. There is a ravenous like. In, like insane demand for a new Final Fantasy Tactics, and I can't believe Square is not putting at least somebody on on that or finding some developer to make it because there there is not really a lot of these you know turn based strategy RPGs coming out. I, the, the only one I can think of is like XCOM, which is actually very similar to a Japanese strategy RPG, and the guys who make that game love Final Fantasy Tactics and Fire Emblem and stuff like that. But um, there there aren't a lot of these games being made, and I find that very strange and disappointing. 
Is there a ravenous demand, or is it that the people who really want this game are very, very, very vocal? I think it's it's known to be one of the greatest games of all time, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics, and I believe that there was like some awful mobile like Final Fantasy Tactics R or something like that in Japan, because of course there's got to be some terrible spinoff. But I remember when that was announced, everyone was just like angry, very, very angry. Like, we just give us another game. But I think after Bravely Default and things like that, I think Square knows that um, there is a market for these older kind of games, these games that aren't about being super flashy. So I'm hoping they will think about that in the future. You know, they're doing really great stuff on portable systems. I think it's worth noting that, like, we talk in game, we talk about games like Bravely Default in terms of being really successful, but didn't it only sell a few hundred thousand copies? Like, it definitely didn't hit a million. Well, I find that, that, I mean, it's all relative, really, but. No, it totally is, but, like, a lot of these games require a lot of resources to actually make. That is true. And I, I think that, like, if. If they set their budgets appropriately and they know what they need to sell in order to make a profit, they can make it happen. Because, like, if Dragon Quest Seven can make it over to the United States, like, the sky is basically the limit. That is one of the slowest-paced, most traditional JRPGs, which was never popular here when it came out. So I have, I have a feeling that, like, that is really saying something if Dragon Quest Seven can come over here, especially, like, in the dying days of the 3DS. I'm so happy it's coming out here, and I don't think it's going to sell a lick. Oh, same here. I think it's a huge mistake in terms of business. Yeah, this is but, a terrible um, decision. I'm yeah. so happy that they made it because now I can have it. I support their terrible decision. I'm, I'm on board for it. But I'm like, um, no, no, no. I, I don't want anyone to think that I don't want this game to come over here. I'm going to play it again. This is the perfect oh, yeah. way to play I'm this game. I'm playing the hell out of it. It's yeah. not going to sell at all, but I can't wait to play it. But I remember the uh, I mean, we wrote stories about it. Like Square was surprised by how well the game sold. I mean, they held on mm-hmm. to it for two years or rather 18 months and like, by the time Dragon Quest Seven comes out, they'll have held on to it for about three and a half years. So, Bravely they, Default succeeded because it was very Final Fantasy esque. Yeah, and Final Fantasy, for whatever reason, has always been a lot more palatable or a lot you know, a lot easier sell here. I I think it's for some people don't like the first person RPG aspect. Maybe they don't like Toriyama's art. I don't know. Hmm. Could be a it could be a lot of things. But. People still love Dragon Ball. It's still like a huge thing, even even in America. Like so, true. I don't know. Maybe they could work that angle again. I don't <laughs> make, know. Make all the characters Super Saiyan on the cover or something. Well, that's the thing. Is like Dragon Ball is Super Saiyan, right? It's like the the archetypal shonen RPG or shonen anime. Whereas a game like Dragon Balls is it's always been more ghibli. It's always been very it's always been whimsical. It's always been European. it's meant meant to harken back to the innocence of childhood. It tells emotional stories. And there's very little about Dragon Quest that people would go, "Man, that is bad ass," <laughs> right? At the same time, I really doubt those people are buying $40 3DS games. I, I feel like they know their market right now, and I think they know how mm-hmm. much these games will sell. Yeah, I hate to be such a downer. It's just... Uh, if, you, if you look at how few boxed products are coming out for the 3DS, yeah. it seems like all that's left are people that play RPGs, because I just wrote about this in that... Mm-hmm. Um, because we're so old school? Yeah, really, pretty much. It's like, you are so old school, you you pay $40 for a video game. So We're so stuck we're in the past you. that we just like, damn it, give us our boxed products. 
Yeah. I mean, like, so we have Yoke, like, just in like six months or so, we have like Yokai Watch, um, Legend of Legacy, uh, Stella Glow, Mario and Luigi Paper Jam, and then next year we're going to have Fire Emblem and um dragon quest 7 and 8 and probably some other stuff i'm forgetting about like this is now like what the psp was five years ago this is just an rpg system it's reminding me of what happened with the wii actually where i think nintendo's realizing that they don't have a ton left in the pipeline for the 3ds so they're just so they're just throwing everything out that they can to keep make sure that the year is populated i think i made that prediction on an old episode of this where i said my only hope for dragon quest 7 is that nintendo needs something because yeah. no one else is making anything. So it's like, okay, this is a product we can talk about. This is a product we can release. This will make us seem relevant because we're actually making games or releasing games for this system that is waning in popularity now. As soon as Dragon Quest Eleven was confirmed for the 3DS, I became a lot more hopeful that Dragon Quest Seven would come out here. Just, if anything, because if they want to release it over here, then it's good to keep the kind of the, the drumbeat going for the series. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. But as for Image Epoch, yeah, it's, seems like they're very much a, well, they're a product of a bygone era. And I'm going to say that they never made anything that was particularly great. Um, they were the definition of RPG comfort food, but in their own way, they are missed because, I, these mid-tier developers uh, that would develop these 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 games, like sometimes they would create gems, you know. And it's a sh- and honestly, the more RPGs, the better. So to lose a company that wasn't actively going for lowest common denominator is kind of legitimately disappointing. That is sad. Like I I turn my I turn my nose up at certain RPGs, a certain kind of RPG that is just like all about uh pandering and things like that so it was nice to see this back off of that a little bit i mean there's still some fan service this is ultimately kind of like a harem anime where (laughs) you are this hero and you have four magical waifu witches and like you know you know how it goes but at the same time it it seems very innocent and very like pg rated it's not about like shoving anime boobs in your face at all times so like the the standard is very low right now and they managed to meet it which i'm happy about (laughs) On a happier note, Valkyria Chronicles unexpectedly making its return. Or is it expected because last year at this time, Valkyria Chronicles released on Steam and really exploded back into the public consciousness in a way that I was legitimately shocked by. Because even when Valkyria Chronicles came out in 2007, it really like it definitely had fans and i was one of them but it didn't really make a dent on the public consciousness and sega's attempts to turn it into an actual franchise were mostly a failure and it died and valkyria chronicles 3 never came out here and now it's back um it's called valkyrie valkyria blue what was it valkyria azure revolution i believe not not a strategy game anymore. It is a real-time action RPG with simulation elements, hmm. which I'm not entirely sure what that means. Did you play the original Valkyria Chronicles, Bob? Oh yeah, I played. Uh, I played a hell of a lot of it. I got to. The, I finished it actually. Me too. I love that game. Yeah. 
great game, very anime. Um, but in in like a in a respectable way, you know, like yeah. I feel like I don't know, Tales if, is very anime, but it's also like Saturday morning like anime. Valkyria, Valkyria but, um, Chronicles fits in that kind of I I want to say Gundam mode. Where it takes it's, itself a bit more seriously, but it's still very anime. Yeah, it's just like it's kind of like like Ghibli slash Gundam, where it's like this picturesque European uh, post-war world or pre-war world, but um, mm-hmm. with also like the seriousness of war and you know, very dramatic characters dying. Oh yeah, lots of tears. Uh, Valkyria Chronicles worked on a number of levels. Um, it's large cast. Um, at, it's at the time, absolutely gorgeous graphics. Um, it's large and interesting, almost puzzle-like battlefields. Just the sheer amount of stuff that they kept adding in, like you could add, you could win medals, um, that you would be rewarded. There was a newspaper. There were little side stories that you could watch that were super fun. And it did such a great job of giving personality to the cast, even though most of them didn't actually fit into the story. Like, everybody had their own favorites, right? So even though even though a character like, what was it? There was a character, I think, named, like, Wolf, who was, like, a female sniper. Even oh, though right, yeah. she never really had any spoken lines in the story, like, you knew all about her because her traits told a story. Her traits told you what she liked. Like, oh, she hates people. So she gets a bonus if I put her up in this, like, crow's nest or whatever, (laughs) and she can shoot people. Done. Um, And just the way that she talks, like her little lines um, when you're moving her around. Like, you instantly had a feel for the character. And actually, one of the... It was actually maybe a mistake for them in Valkyria Chronicles 2 to put the spotlight more on characters like... um. I think one of the soldiers wanted to be a pop idol, and she. Oh yeah, that was su- that was a minor focus in Valkyria Chronicles to the point where I think the only DLC for the game was about that idol character. She she became extremely popular in Japan. Yeah, and so like she got a much bigger role in Valkyria Chronicles too, which is like a, okay, whatever. But I. So my point is, is that Valkyria Chronicles was a great game. They're changing it dramatically for Azure Revolution. I'm kind of curious. What are your thoughts on this, Bob? Well, I, I like Media Vision as a developer, and they actually developed uh, Valkyria Chronicles 3, which um, I hear good things about, even though I'll never play it because I can't. Uh, good game, more limited than people remember. Mm, okay. But I feel like they've done good things and have interesting ideas. Like, Wild Arms 4 is one of my secret favorite RPGs just because like it understood its budget and it understood what it could do, and it worked within that masterfully to make this strange, like, hybrid like platforming rpg with super quick battles it's like it's a really strange and interesting game that probably no one played but uh wild arms 4 is like i if you, if you have a chance go back and play it it's probably like 10 bucks wherever PSP? you find it psp was it on ps oh it's on ps2 ps2 yeah it came out in 2005 mm. but um <laughs> wow okay. yeah like i i feel like they have some talent there, and um, they've also made the Chaos Rings RPGs for mobile, uh, which I hear good things about. I haven't played yeah, those. Yeah, they were but, good. Um, yeah, but they are one of those developers that has been hanging in there for 20 years doing basically RPGs the entire time. Hmm. Yeah, so here, 
I was initially disappointed to find out that it wasn't like Valkyria Chronicles. Now I'm okay with that. Because I felt like this, the formula was already getting a tiny bit stale with Valkyria Chronicles 3. And there's nothing wrong with taking risks. I think developers should be rewarded for taking risks. It sounds like they have some interesting ideas. And it doesn't sound like they're making it a just a pure hack and slash. It sounds like there's still a strategy component and like you're still having like an army or something. Like there aren't a ton of details going on here. Do you have a better handle of what this is actually going to be than I do, Bob? Uh, not really. It has yeah. been hard to piece together. I, I mean, I'm just happy it's back and um, someone is doing something with that idea because I feel like it's too uh, valuable to just let go. It looks gorgeous too. I mean, it. They were showing. I don't, I don't know. Was that a screenshot or a piece of concept art? I'm pretty sure it was a screen, an early screenshot in Famitsu, hmm. and it looked so much better than Valkyria Chronicles One. And I, I remember Valkyria Chronicles One looking like absolutely gorgeous, like kind of like a storybook. So. I really hope that the the art style kind of like lives up to the standards that are being set. But more interestingly, it seems like Sega is not as much out of the video, the pure video game business as we thought. No, I mean, well, they do own um, Atlas. Mm -hmm. So it was funny to think about uh, Shining Forest while playing Stella Glow. And when you boot the game up, there's a huge Sega logo. So... Yeah, they do own Atlas, but my assumption was that most of most of the things that they would be doing on the console side would be through Atlas from now on, while they themselves focus mostly on mobile. Apparently, that's not the case. And aren't they also publish, publishing Yakuza Five? Oh yeah, that's PS3? coming out here <laughs> for PS3, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I that's, mean, they're, they're is doing, that still coming out? That's again another bad idea. I'm I'm behind completely. <laughs> Hey, you know, I like I like the Yakuza games. Oh, I, I do too, and uh, it's actually coming out, oh, I, I don't know when this is coming out, but it came out in Japan on December 6, 2012. I don't know when the release date for here is, but I know it's coming out here. Wow, so it came out around the same time as Dragon Quest Seven. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so all these like games that we never got in the first place, like they're finally coming out three years after the fact. There's still hope. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, I will obviously be playing Valkyria Azure Revolution when it comes out. Um, I'm really curious to see where they end up taking this. And I hope it's on PC so that people play it. Because it seems like, for various reasons, these games seem to have found an audience on the PC in a way that they haven't elsewhere. Did you see that Disgaea is finally coming out on Steam? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm actually surprised that it wasn't on Steam yeah, I, Mike and I were talking about this before, and we were like going, what the heck? Why isn't this on Steam? So uh, God knows, like, Disgaea was on every other platform, so it made sense for it to be on Steam. There are so many uh, Nipponichi games on Steam that it, it's weird that that was one of the ones that wasn't there, but I guess, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't developed when PC gaming was as big as it is now, so I understand why they can't just, like, throw it onto a computer. Japanese developers have definitely recognized the importance of of Steam and digital sales. Um, there was an interesting 
when I was meeting, when I was at an XSEED event last month, I was talking to one of their top people, uh, Ken, and he was talking about how important digital sales have been for XSEED, just in the sense that he was talking about the extra 10% where when they first started, they were always doing just well enough to scrape by, but he was always like, if we could just get like 10% more sales, like we would actually be profitable. And digital platforms like Steam and, and digital downloads and that sort of thing have given them that, that extra 10% that they need to actually be doing well. And so. That's good. I've been a fan of their stuff. I mean, speaking of XSeed, Wild Arms 4, they localize things mm-hmm. like Shadow Hearts 3 were some Mm -hmm. of their earlier releases, which, uh, yeah, like I'm glad that they would touch those games and no one else would. So you're seeing like NIS and Sega now also experiencing some success. So we were just mourning the death of Image Epoch, but in some ways, like, things look brighter for the Japanese side than than I might have thought, just because they have more distribution outlets than they had in the past and so have a lot easier time putting their games in front of an audience. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's it's pretty... I, I, I don't like how there are games that are just coming out on the Vita in 2015 and nowhere else. That really bothers me. Like, I feel like even if it was made for the Vita, these games deserve a life elsewhere because I've only seen one Vita in the wild in my entire life, in my four years of owning one, and that was like on a on a train leaving GDC, the the most likely place to find a Vita. So, like, I don't know. I, I just, like, things like um, Dancing All Night and the Rampa series, things like that, I feel like, man, I wish those games could go somewhere else because they're probably not making any money. And well, even in Japan, yeah. you don't really see them. I mean, certainly when I was there in July, I saw 3DSs, but I did not see a single Vita. Um, whereas when I was there, you know... All the way up through 2013, I was seeing PSPs all over the place. Like, the PSP was rampant um, because of Monster Hunter. Uh, but obviously, 3DS, like, has just taken over, um, unless people are playing on mobile. But in any case, this is a conversation that we've had many times. Uh, Stella Glow, uh, I guess you're going to give it a cautious recommendation? Yeah, if I was reviewing it and... Don't put the score on Metacritic or anything, but uh, I'd probably give it like a three out of five. Sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, it's not trying to do anything super interesting, but at the same time, no one else is making this kind of a game, and it does what it does well. And um, I mean, I don't come to these games for story, and so that's completely irrelevant to me. But um, yeah, it's like it's respectable. It's uh, unambitious and respectable, I guess. And Valkyria Azura Revolution seems to be (laughs) fairly long far along it looks like it looks like we're gonna get a valkyria chronicles um remaster on ps4 next year uh it's coming out in february in japan so i would actually expect it to be out before the end of the year here because hmm. it could probably use the same script right i don't know like how much work they would have to do i'm sure they would have to do some programming to get it in but yeah i don't know how that works uh for a game designed specifically for the playstation 3 yeah, uh, well, they're remastering it, so I don't know like how to what extent they're rebuilding it for the PS4, but at the minimum, we're going to get trophies. 
Because when it came out, there were no trophies on the PS4, PS3, if you can believe that. Oh, God. Right? How did we live with ourselves without seeing a tiny JPEG <laughs> whenever we did something special? I know. But it's one more reason for me to be able to sell my PS3 because so many of the games that I was like, well, I'm going to keep my PS3 around so that I can play X game um, are now coming out on the PS4. So the PS3 is rapidly becoming a really big paperweight for me, even though I have a launch PS3, so I can still play PS2 games. I still can't detach mine. There's just too much on there that will never be playable anywhere else. I suppose I would have a hard time getting rid of the Eco Shadow Collection. And Demon Souls. Though Demon Souls, are the servers still on for that game? Oh yeah. Wow. I remember like Atlas was like, "Well, we'll keep the servers on a little longer in like 2012," and now it's 2015. Yeah, they were going to close them in like June of 2012, and we were going to do it like a live stream at one up, like the final hours of Demon Souls. But then the Atlas PR guy emailed me and said, "Okay, just uh, hold off on that." And then they announced like, "Oh, they'll be on indefinitely." Wow. Yeah. Well. I mean... Good for them. Good for them. I'm sure I mean, that game still sells copies, still moves copies, too. Didn't... I, I think Demon's Souls by itself, like, turned Atlas a profit in 2010 or whatever it came out. Like, it's just... Like, they paid basically nothing for that game and had no budget for it. And then it just sold, like, 100 times, 200, 300 times what they were expecting they were expecting like a thousand copies sold, and it sold like three, four hundred thousand copies. Amazing, but in any case, we're rambling now. Bob, uh, anything to plug right now? Uh, yeah, sure. Please listen to Retronauts. You can find that on US Gamer, and uh, also listen to Talking Simpsons, the Laser Time Podcast Network's chronological exploration of the Simpsons. We're in the beginning of season two right now, and you can find that mm-hmm. by going to lasertimepodcast.com or just searching for Talking Simpsons in whatever podcast program you use, and I think you'll like it. You're going to bring me on the baseball episode, right? Uh, we Oh, uh, Homer at the Bat? Yeah, I got to be on the baseball Oh, yeah, I'll tell episode. Chris about that. We just did um, Dance and Homer a few weeks ago, so that's another baseball oh, episode. Oh, I love Dance and Homer. Great episode. Um, yeah, I actually just caught the... Um, Bart on Lisa on Ice. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Uh, a good one, but it's always kind of been funny to me because all of a sudden Bart is a really good hockey player, but then he's never a good hockey player. <laughs> like he never plays hockey again after that. There's a lot of things they don't pursue that they should after an episode closes. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. It's like, oh, Bart plays a lot of hockey or something, and he has like all the gear. Oh no, no, he never plays hockey again after. Also, that. I, I think uh, Homer still owns the Denver Broncos, right? I mean, he must. I mean, Hank Scorpio took over the East Coast. Yeah. Continuity Uh, is a problem. Hey, if he took over the Denver Broncos in like 1995 or whenever that episode aired, like just a couple years later, the Broncos won the Super Bowl. So Homer was doing pretty well for himself. Yeah. And with TV rights and everything, he's making money hand over fist. But yeah, I digress. Um, Obviously, you can find us on... Twitter at US Gamer and uh, check out our stuff over at usgamer.net. Find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Um, I believe entries for our Fallout 4 contest are now closed, but uh, well, I will be announcing the winner on our show notes. Um, so I'm going to be posting a few of the favorites that I have received. So go check that out. 
Um, congratulations to the winner of that, whoever it might be. I don't know who it is right now, but thanks to everybody who sent a screenshot. Bob, where can we find you on Twitter? I am Bob Servo on Twitter, B-O-B-S-E-R-V-O. Next week is Thanksgiving, um, and I'm going back home for Thanksgiving, so I don't believe that there's going to be an episode next week. The week after, um, I don't know. We'll think of something to talk about. We always do. So please look forward to that. Until then, for Bob and Phil and myself, I've been Cat Bailey. Thanks for coming and listening to the show. And until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.